In this episode of the Church Security Roll Call, we're going to be discussing lessons learned from a deadly force attack. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Chris with the Sheepdog Church Security Academy, and this is your Church Security Roll Call. Today we're going to be discussing the article, The 2015 Anna Prayer Center Stabbing. If you'd like to read that article, go to our website, sheepdogchurchsecurity.net, and look under the News tab. All right, let's start in the Bible as we always do. This one has a few names in it, so you'll have to bear with me. But it's 2 Samuel 4, verse 7, and it reads like this. For when Rechabob and Bohanah, his brother, came into the house, Ishbosheth lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and get them away through the plain of all night, through the plain all night. Okay, sorry about that. Names, ancient names, very difficult. But it's a good verse for us because what we see here is we see this ambush from within. These two brothers going into the house, and while this person lay silently in their bed, um, they killed him. And they did some pretty horrible things to him, beheaded him and took his head. And then they, you know, ran off through the night um, across the plain or through the plain. And so this is what happened in this situation. It was kind of an, you know, it was an unprovoked attack on uh, two people at this prayer center. So before we continue, I just want to remind you to get a copy of the download for this one and then share it with your team and have a discussion about the situation here. And this is also to maybe even a higher level in the sense that this is something you're going to want to maybe talk with your bosses, especially if you have a ministry that reaches out to people at risk. And we'll get more into that in a second here. All right, so let's get into the setting of the situation. So the Anna Prayer Counseling and Retreat Center is in a rural and wooded portion of Frederick County in Maryland. It is a prayer retreat uh, with two chapels on a large campus. This is a non-denominational Korean-American church. Um, Signs to and on the prayer center's campus are both in English and Korean. Uh, Some persons with special needs are housed at the Anna Prayer Center so counselors can work with them. On Sunday, July 25, 2015, following an evening meal, a small group gathered for prayer in a meeting room next to the dining hall. They were waiting for a guest to finish eating and join them. Among those waiting were, I'm not even going to attempt these names because I don't want to be disrespectful, but essentially Mr. and Mrs. Park, um, age 62 and aged uh, 57. They were a married couple who had come from South Korea to volunteer at the center. He was the groundskeeper and she was a cook. Finally, the guest came in with his hands behind his back. Mr. Park asked him to sit down so they could begin the meeting. The guest pulled his hands from behind his back, holding a knife he had taken from the kitchen. He attacked Park, stabbing him several times. His wife intervened, trying to protect her husband. Um, She was also wounded. 
the assailant left, walking down a long drive to a, a county road. Um, someone in the room went into the kitchen when the attack began and called 911, telling them of the assault and asking for medical help. The attacker had called 911 on the Saturday before this event to complain about the food, which he was not, uh, which was not to his liking. Apparently, the food was like the food served in Korea, is so Korean food. And the assailant, who was Korean American, was accustomed to American style food. He claimed they were trying to kill him and make him ill. On the road after the attack, he also called 911 telling them to send an ambulance since he stabbed two persons. So let's talk a little bit about this killer. Um, the suspect in the stabbing was someone who had been labeled criminally insane a few generations ago. A uh, resident in North Virginia, uh, he was a resident of North, Northern Virginia. He was a U.S. born Korean American at age 30. He hated other Koreans because of how they disrespected him. That was his words, disrespected. Um, he confided to the detectives that for eight years, he had thoughts about invading Korea or Koreans. Um, however, however, his manners and behavior probably provoked their disapproval of him as he was mentally ill. So basically what Wesley's saying here is because of his mental illness and because of his behavior around other people, um, they probably were kind of standoffish with him or or whatever, treated him differently than they would treat other people. And so therefore, um, he interpreted that as disapproval of him. Um, the killer was homeless. Um, before going to the Anna Prayer Center, he had been staying at, at a Fairfax County homeless shelter, the latest among several. Um, his mother arranged for him to stay at the Anna Prayer and Counseling Center for about a month to get help. Uh, she could not deal with him anymore at home. He had already assaulted family members. According to the killer's mother, he had been diagnosed as bipolar when he was 10 years old and grew up mentally ill. Through the previous decade, um, he had been in mental health facilities and jails repeatedly. The cycle was um, to get arrested or committed, get help, and then he would get out, get in trouble again, and then go back into commitment or arrest in the, in the jail. She feared for her own safety because he would become violent. Therefore, it was not hard to see why other people, in, uh, including the people at this church, did not respect him. Um, he did need help. And so here's somebody with lifelong, I mean, starting at 10 all the way up to 30 years old, 20 years of mental illness, with a cycle of, you know, going to jail or treatment and then, you know, doing and saying whatever he needs to say, get released, then commit another act of violence, get re arrested or recommitted, and so on and so forth. Just this ongoing rotation, this cycle in his life. All right, moving on. So Mr. Park did die of his wounds. His wife uh, was treated at the hospital and survived. Um, after recovering from her wounds, the wife returned to South Korea. In 2020, she filed a lawsuit at Frederick County um, against the Anna Prayer Center and its two top administrators claiming negligence led to her wounding and the death of the hu husband. 
A summary judgment was made in the judge for the defendants. They found that the plaintiff did not establish that the defendants had a duty to protect the couple from violence. Uh, this summary uh, judgment was upheld in appeal. That's actually, I'm going to pause here for a minute. We see this a lot, right? So this guy, you know, killed a husband, wounded the wife, and then she comes back later to file a lawsuit. And so far what we're seeing is kind of a mixed bag. In this case, you know, they said, nope, you know, you can't sue the Anna Prayer Center because um, there was no duty to protect. But then we're also seeing where it goes the other way. And I would say this, I believe we're going to see a change in how these lawsuits are settled. More and more of these lawsuits are going in the favor of, of um, the victims. Um, so that's... a potentially against churches that's you know or in any any other organization because there's an increasing expectation that people are going to be safe at your location and so it's going to be up to organizations churches houses of worship to start taking reasonable steps to safeguard people because that's typically why there are successful lawsuits is the jury or the court decides that, hey, you know, this was a known threat that you failed to address. And so, therefore, you're going to be held liably, you know, liable, at least civilly liable for this. I've said this more than once. You know, fires are a known thing. We know fires ex exist. If you don't have a fire evacuation plan and your, your church burns down and somebody gets injured or killed in that, I can't imagine you're going to survive the lawsuit because they're going to say fires are known. You should have known about this, but you chose not to plan for it. And I see that these deadly encounters will slowly start to shift in that direction as well. And so it's very important that we have plans. You know, we take reasonable steps to address known threats. All right. Uh, immediately following the deadly force incident, Anna Prayer Center restricted access to the grounds for security reasons. The board and administration said they would continue to help troubled persons, but recognized the needs for more careful consideration of who, who to bring in and for closer supervision of mentally ill. Um, more than five years later, on November 20... Okay, that's not important. All right, so the lessons learned. So a lot of times what I do for lessons learned is I try to um, actually look for something beyond of what Wesley, who writes these articles, does. Um, but, you know, this time, and it's not because I'm trying to, you know, whatever. I like to give you a balance what Wesley says, what I say. Anyway, but my point here is this. What Wesley has here is an extremely important lessons learned. And what he's doing in the article, and you might want to check it out because he has actually a pretty good list here, is he's looking at the fact, and I 100% agree with him, is if your church, your house of worship, is reaching out to a group of people that are troubled, right? They have something going on. Maybe it's drug or alcohol addiction, Whatever it is, you know, you're reaching out to the homeless population. Maybe you're reaching out to people with mental illness or whatever it is. 
each one of these groups um, could potentially bring problems, could bring, some of the individuals could be problematic. And so what we have to do is be very careful about acknowledging who we can help and who we can't help. Now, I know that sounds crazy to you, but I hope you're kind of understanding what I'm saying, is we have to be very careful. We got to stay with, we, we have to stay within the realm of what we're actually capable of doing, right? And so this is what he kind of, as I go through his steps, you're going to see what I'm talking about here. So the first one he has, and it's got three sublines to it, is evaluate those um, you bring in for help. In the first place, um, you find out what they really need. So this is part of the evaluation. What do they really need? And so that means you're talking with them, you're interacting, you're trying to decide, okay, what's the real issue going on here? And then are we able to fulfill that? Can we actually help this person? I mean, if you're not set up to deal with people with severe mental illness that need medication and counseling, are you really the ones to provide that? If you're not, then you, you know, for one, maybe you should, you know, you should push them on towards somebody who can actually have, you know, deal with that. I know of this one church, and we've talked about it before. They minister to convicted sex offenders. And they've worked very hard to create a ministry around that and bring in the right kind of help, the people with the right knowledge and experience to minister to this group of people. That's fantastic because they've targeted that. But if you haven't done that, then maybe you're better off saying, hey, you know, we want to help you in your recovery. However, um, this, these are other services or other churches around us that may be able to help you better because they're targeting you where we're just more general or whatever. That's, you're not part of our, um, you don't fit perfectly into what we're doing. Same thing with homelessness. You know, if you're not set up to have a homeless ministry, then should you try to minister to the homeless? I would suggest probably not especially if somebody across the street or down the road or across town can do it better than you can. All right. So second, you find out what they really need. And then you also have an opportunity to evaluate what risks that person poses. And so if they are completely unstable, like this guy who's been bipolar for 20 years, in and out of jail, in and out of uh, treatment facilities, you know, there's a risk attached to that, especially with him with a history of violence. And then know where to transfer or send somebody who needs, um, needs more secure care than you can provide or better care. Um, it's not our job as the church, I'm going to say small C, your church, to be the answer to all the ills in the world. You know, you do what God's called you to do, minister, all that kind of stuff, whatever special um, groups that maybe you're ministering to, you know, stay within your realm and just be able to know that we're not qualified when we're not qualified and be willing to, to lead them and help them into the next group. All right, number two, have policies and procedures in place of how to handle certain kinds of persons. Makes complete sense where they may go and stay, where they may have, um, uh, what they may have as far as their diagnosis and then what they may do. And so evaluating people, are you fit, you know, are you, do you fit into what we have? And then are you any sort of 
um, you know, what special needs you might have, and then how are we going to deal with that and be very specific of how you're going to deal with those people. Next, monitor and supervise those receiving help, especially residents. So if you, our people are staying in your facility or going with you off to a, a, you know, a men's retreat or women's retreat and all that kind of stuff, you know, and you know that they're higher risk, then what are you doing? So are you controlling access to knives, screwdrivers, and puncture devices? You know, are you controlling access to matches and lighters? You know, check for and keep alcohol and drugs out of certain, you know, those areas, obviously. Uh, know where they are at, on the premises. If you have somebody that's um, with mental illness or has problems and you know about them, the safety team should be aware of them and we should be monitoring them. Now, I'm not talking stalking them necessarily, but I'm saying we're paying attention to what's going on and we're observing and we know where they are. Um, and then, of course, part of it, knowing when they're absent or missing. It's like, hey, we have this high-risk person. Where are they? I don't see him anymore. Do you know where he is? You know, we need to know those kind of things and keep track. And then, of course, being prepared and ready to use verbal de-escalation and don't hesitate to call authorities when needed. So this is all very good advice, especially if you're ministering to a group of people that could be, I, gosh, I want to find the right word. I, problematic is, it sounds horrible. I, I don't like that word. Um, higher needs. I mean, or potentially at-risk needs. So my church had a, you know, a 12-step program, Celebrate Recovery. Great program, ministered to a great deal of people. And it, but occasionally they had some behavioral issues or people would go off the wagon and, you know, start drinking again or, you know, start using again. And maybe they would come to one or two meetings and they'd be drunk or high or whatever. And there had to be a policy in place on... What do we do when somebody shows up like that? And how, do, how does that ministry deal with that? And so that's really all that Wesley's saying, and I fully 100% endorse, endorse. You know, what do, we, what, what do we do when that happens? That's got to be the plan, and that's what you have to talk about. And that's kind of why I said this is, this is one of those podcasts that this has, to, this has to be part of an upper leadership conversation, you know, it's nice, you know, I think sometimes, and I'm not saying all churches or all whatever, but some it's like, hey, we're going to have to celebrate recovery because we have a recovered alcoholic and they really want to minister to people and they want to add, put more of God into it and all that good stuff. Awesome. That's great. But that also means that there's additional policies and considerations that we have to put into place, think about, talk about, and get organized. And so maybe your church has a celebrate recovery. And what are the plans? You know, maybe you're reaching out to homeless people. That can include drug and alcohol. It could also include mental illness. You know, what is our plan when they become disruptive or potentially violent? What, what do we do in those kind of circumstances? Or it's just somebody we know, mental illness, that comes and visits our church and they're up and down and they're all around and you know, maybe they're spending time in jail and all that kind of stuff. We need to form plans for dealing with those kind of situations. All right. Other than that, I want to, you're going to be the first to hear this. This morning, this morning, I published a new book to Amazon. 
It's called Shepherding the Sheepdogs. And what it's intended to be is a, actually a book for leaders. And so I'll, I'll kind of explain my whole thought process behind this. Is when I was in the military, I was an army captain. And um, I went, I, I led a forward support company. And that included mechanics, cooks, and transportation. When I went through training for that, they didn't turn me into a cook, they didn't turn me into a mechanic, and they didn't turn me into a transportation guy. What they did is they gave me enough information to be dangerous <laughs> on all of those topics so I knew what right looks like. And so when I wrote this book, I, I kind of looked at it as, okay, you're the company commander. You need to know what your safety team knows to some degree. You don't need to know it to the depth of the safety team, but you need to have at least an introduction to things like verbal de-escalation and active shooter and child protection. You know, you need to have an introductory uh, introduction to all of that materials. But then on top of that, there's additional responsibilities that you have that your team, your safety team doesn't have. And so that's the whole point of this book. It's called Shepherding the Sheepdogs. It just went live today. I just uploaded it today. Right now, I think it's only the ebook that's now available. And within a day or two, then the printed version is going to be worth it. But I just want you to know about that. Maybe you want to check it out. Maybe you want to buy it for your pastor. Maybe you want to buy it for people on your board, if your church has a church board or, or you know, that kind of deal. I think it's going to be a great book. It's going to be very helpful. And it's really putting them in a position to support a good safety ministry. So other than that, if you like this video, please like, comment, share, all that good stuff. And hey, thank you for being here this week and let's be careful out there. This program is made for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice.